Welcome to the Wildlife Experience. Uh, this is your host, Andrew Austin. In this episode, I interview uh, Sophie Morris. Sophie is a wildlife biology student at Texas Tech University. Uh, we cover a lot of stuff that she's done um, throughout her undergrad. Um, she is about to graduate and uh, she will be going to grad school. And uh, we, t- we talk about some of that. And um, she's done a lot of cool research with birds and she's even published a paper already on cormorants. And um, so it was really good to talk to Sophie. Um, we've been friends on social media for a little while. We try to keep up with each other. And um, it's really cool to, to have friends like her um, that are being very successful in, the, in this field of wildlife uh, conservation. And uh, so yeah, it was all around a really good conversation. And I think you guys will enjoy it. So now I bring you Sophie Morris. All right. Okay. Uh, so this is uh, take two. Uh, we started recording. I thought I had started recording last time. We're like 20 minutes in and there's no, there's no recording done. So now we're recording. I'm here with Sophie Morris. Sophie, let's try this again. We went through all your background stuff. We, we can... Um, we can skip through that. You, you can, t- you know, you can tell us where you're from, at least, um, and how you got to tech, and uh, then we'll carry on where we were earlier. How about that? Cool. Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. I once again, this is the hard <laughs> question that Andrew's making me answer for the second time. But <laughs> I grew up in a military family, so I'm not really from one place. I was born in Alabama, but we lived there for like two months after I was born, so I don't really call that home. Um, and then I lived in a variety of places like Virginia and Utah and Ohio and Florida and New Mexico and a few other places intermixed in there. Um, and we, we lived in Albuquerque last. So we lived in New Mexico, my senior year of high school, and it was the third high school I had gone to. Um, and like I was telling Andrew earlier, it was also like the favorite place that I had lived. And it's where I still now will be like, oh yeah, I'm from Albuquerque because it just like makes sense for me to say and a few different reasons, mostly because I go to Texas Tech and people are confused if you're not from Texas to begin with. So saying you're from Ohio or that you live in Ohio really confuses people. And so saying you're from Albuquerque is just a lot easier. Um, Otherwise, like my road to Texas Tech was a little complicated, but not not too bad. I thought I was going to go to the Air Force Academy. That was like my life path for a really long time. And then I sent in my application and I did not want to go anymore. I realized it wasn't for me. It wasn't what I wanted to do. Um, The Academy lifestyle wasn't the lifestyle for me. And I just had to kind of like find a new place to go. And I applied to tech as a backup school and I had a few friends going there. So I was like, okay, I'll go to Texas Tech with no plan, really. I was like, maybe I'll major in architecture. I hated that so much. Um, I read a book on it and the pros and the cons were both so bad to me. Like I read them both and they were, none of them sounded fun or good. Um, So I just scrolled through all the majors and I found natural resources management. um, And I saw that it had plan ID on the like course list. And I was like, oh, plan ID sounds so cool. Like what other major has a class like this? So I ended up majoring in that after like finding a few jobs that I could do afterwards 
to ease my parents' mind. Um, and then, yeah, I ended up at Texas Tech and am majoring in natural resources management. I have one semester, or I guess just a few weeks left right. at Texas Tech. All right. So we're, we're close to back to where we left off in the first half yeah. of this. Uh, the first take. Um, at some point in your childhood, you found a passion for the outdoors and nature, and that's kind of what helped you decide what to major in, right? For sure. Yeah. So we had just a ton of experiences growing up being in the like in the military. So anytime we lived any different spot, my parents really made the most of where we were. And we just got to travel and explore all these different ecosystems and ecoregions. And we went to all these national parks and I just got to see all this really cool stuff. And the outdoors was just always a huge component of what we went out and did to begin with. Um, and I didn't realize that that was making an impact on me because I wasn't always the most positive hiker as a kid. So it was like, oh, we're going to go on a hike. And I was like, why are we always going on hikes? And now like today I'm like, who wants to go on a hike? You're like guided <laughs> no hikes. You do like uh, guided yeah. mountain hikes and stuff, don't you? Like really hardcore mountaineering yeah. stuff. Yeah. I was a backpacking guy this past summer in Rocky Mountain, That's so um, cool. which was a really, really cool experience. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would have never expected that as a kid, but my brother went to Colorado State and when he started, he's like five, six years older than me. Okay. Um, and so when he was in college, he was labeled as the outdoorsy one. It was like, oh, John is just so outdoorsy and I wanted to be the outdoorsy one. So after that, I was like, how can I become the outdoorsy one? And how can I switch this around? And I've done it. At this I'm point, now the outdoorsy you, you one. claim that title. Yeah. Really. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, we lived in Maryland for a really long time. We lived there for seven years, which for us is a very long time. Um, and I got, we had a creek right down our house. We lived in a cul-de-sac. We had a creek. We just did all this stuff. I was always outside. We climbed trees. We were just like, we had the coolest neighbors and we would get home from school and we would do our homework as quick as we could. So we could just go and play outside oh, yeah. for as long as we could. That's the best. Um, and we were there like through fourth grade from when I was like maybe three. So that's just like a cooler memory. But from Maryland, we moved to Utah. So then we were surrounded by the mountains. We went skiing all the time. We went hiking all the time. We did like this big trip right before we moved from Utah down to all the national parks. And I like still remember that as being one of my favorite vacations we've ever taken. Yeah, that's, that's quite a childhood. <laughs> I, uh, my family moved around a little bit, but only within Texas though, which Texas, you know, you can go from one state to the other and it feels like you're moving across like the world because it's uh so ecologically diverse but um not quite as nomadic as uh, your your life has been so far <laughs> moving all over the country yeah i always wish that i had gotten more time especially while being here cuz i i didn't live in texas before this this wasn't a state that we had moved to they lived in san antonio before i was born but being at texas tech was the first time i lived in texas and being in West Texas in the panhandle, especially there's just kind of like a circle surrounding you of nothing. Right. So we have the cap rock pretty close and we have Paladura pretty close. Um, and we have Guadalupe national park and I've been there so many times, but it's still like a three and a half, four hour drive. And big bend is a five hour, six hour drive, yep. but I just never felt like I got 
even close to like the amount of exploration and like discovery in Texas as I wanted to get. Yeah. Um, especially now kind of realizing all, all the eco regions that there are, I'm like, Oh, I didn't even get close to like touching this. You haven't been to the swamps either, I guess in the east no some good stuff over here everybody oh, yeah. wants to go to the big bend and all the fancy mountains but the big thicket's got like this amazing biodiversity and these ancient stream channels and swamps and it's got some it's a it's a different kind of beauty it's not like big views and panoramic views but it's um it's got the the swampy beauty to it you know and just amazing yeah. amazing it's- diversity of plants and animals that that's the the cool thing about east texas um it's got like a mix of like typically Western species and typically Eastern species, like, like a meat in the middle of Texas or Eastern Texas. And it is really neat. If you ever get a chance, you should definitely come out this way. But uh, I guess you're going to be going to Montana soon. Yeah, I will be. Um, I have the research assistantship up in Montana, actually in a wilderness and recreation management lab. Um, And then I'll be doing my research this upcoming summer in the grand canyon and then after i'm done with that i'll be moving up to missoula but you feel like you figured out right now what you do yeah i mean that's quite a plan for the next couple of years you're gonna have a lot of fun i'm i'm so excited i really am i will be busy though i graduate and then i have to like get up to ohio with all my stuff and then my brother gets married and then I have to like immediately fly back the next day to Lubbock to pick up my car to drive to the oh, Grand Canyon. <laughs> so it's like, oh, who needs a break? Who needs All rest? Right. And you can just keep going forever. You know, I, I love it. Really I'm very, right. I'm very busy as well. And sometimes it, it, it can get a little tiring, but when I'm not busy, I get like really depressed. You know, I, I like being very busy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah i'm always like i want a break like i wish i just had a few days where i'm not doing anything and by the second day i'm like oh i need something to do so bad like this is the worst i have nothing to do so i complain about it but it does keep me going right let's back up um we covered all the good stuff you did in in, uh in your undergrad um in the first take Uh, but let's let's cover some of that again so like your first experiences and uh, with research and all that Sweet. Yeah. So I came into Texas Tech and I was majoring in NRM and I didn't really know what that meant, to be honest. I wasn't, I didn't have any exposure to anyone in the outdoor field growing up, except for park rangers, which as we talked about is just the assumption that everyone gets when they're majoring in any environmental field that it's like, oh, you're going to go become a park ranger. And that is what I thought too. Like when I first saw an RM, I was like, oh, this just must be like kind of what park rangers mentioned. Yeah, just a comment. I don't even have you ever even seen a park ranger position like on any wildlife job board? It's like almost not even not on the wildlife job boards. It's like maybe not like even, an interpretive ranger. Okay. Like but not to not like really. uh not to like denigrate like park rangers, but I don't even it's not like a science science position it like for a biologist to no. so that I've always hated that you know like yeah it was pretty early on too i mean i'm a biologist i'm not a freaking park ranger (laughs) yeah and you realize park rangers are very important park rangers are very important (laughs) not not to say that but you know what i mean they are they are they they are needed for sure and there's not enough of them right now totally different realm than than wildlife science you know ecology and stuff yeah 
And when you go back into the parks after starting a major like this, that is natural science based, you realize that these people have, they're all older and they usually don't really look like they have the physical capacity to do one of the long hikes. Like the wilderness rangers are the coolest people ever. I worked really closely with them last year in Rocky Mountain. But a lot of the people working in like the entry stations and stuff, I mean, they're they don't even know much about the park sometimes. Yeah. Which is unfortunate. So, you, you want passionate people in those roles that yeah. taking the time to learn some of the wildlife and the plants and like so they can talk to the public and you know get people to like the outdoors. For sure. Yeah. Um but I guess going back, so I started as conservation science. Yeah. Texas Tech has yeah. a bunch of, bunch of concentrations versus like individual majors. So we're all natural resource management majors yeah. with a concentration. Um, so I started out in conservation science because I, as a kid, like I didn't really think wildlife biologists were a thing. Like if I heard that, I was like, oh, it's just the people that like narrate like the Nat Geo. Like- David Attenborough, Steve Irwin. Exactly. Yeah. Like it didn't seem, it seemed like someone who would work in a zoo to me. Like I didn't, it just didn't click. Like I didn't know any. Um, And so I started out and I joined the wildlife society right away. um, And I met all these upperclassmen and they were all wildlife biology majors and they were all really passionate and they just had done so much experience. What looked like to me, like they had these just like really long resumes. And I was like, wow, you guys have just done so much. Like I had just like clicked with them really early and they just kind of took me under their wing and I got to watch them succeed and I got to watch them fail. And I just figured out like what I need to do to succeed by watching them. And they brought me along and like invited me on captures and to go with them on events that the Wildlife Society was hosting. Cause otherwise I don't think I would have gone. Like if I didn't know someone at that first meeting, if I didn't know someone at the events I signed up for the chances of me as a freshman going on a lot of these things with really no idea what they were would have been really low. So I'm, I was very fortunate to like make a group that was active um, really early, but we had a prairie chicken capture that spring Um, and prairie chickens like, if I, I like probably called my parents and told them and they're like, oh, you're catching chickens. And I was like, yeah, but they're not like really chickens, you know, like they're, they're upland game and that meant nothing to them. And they were like, okay, like go have fun with your chickens. So it's like, okay, like I will. Um, and I didn't really realize the significance of what I was doing. Like prairie chickens are right now listed as threatened and endangered in like different population segments. So it was like really kind of an amazing experience to work with a threatened species right off the bat. Um, but the experience itself, I mean, was just miserable. Like we camped in a ditch. We, it was, we were rained on all of our tents flooded. It was freezing. We were soaking wet day one, never dried. Like we just were wet the whole time, all of our clothes, all of our stuff. Just if you were looking into it or you joined, um, you probably would be like, these kids are idiots. Like this is terrible. <laughs> yeah. But when you but think back, those are, it all added yeah. to the experience though. And it was a good memory, even though it sucked. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and if you catch a chicken, it's like, who cares what you're like, feel like you have a yeah. chicken in your hands, you know, like you're holding this really cool thing and you got to put a band on it and you got to release it. And it's like getting something in your hands for the first time 
and like really being like, oh my gosh, like this is real. Like I'm doing something, like I'm doing research right now. Like I, I get to release this and now they get to monitor this bird. Like that's very cool. Yeah. Um, and we caught a lot of prairie chickens that last day because it wasn't raining anymore and the sun was out. And so they were just on the leks dancing like crazy, looking for their ladies. Like they were just going into the funnel traps, which we used to trap them left and right. Um, and so we caught some at our site. We had a bunch of different sites and then we got called over to help with another site. So I got to release like two birds that day, band, maybe three. And it was just like a very cool experience. And I was like, oh yeah, like I want to do research. Like this is cool. Um, and then I knew some upperclassmen that did research and a few of them were finishing up their degrees. And so they were like, oh, like, let me get you in contact with our research advisor, which was Dr. Bull, who is a researcher for USGS and the Texas Cooperative Fish and Wildlife Research Unit. Um, and so they were finishing up and he was looking for a new undergrad. And so I went into his office at the end of my freshman year and he asked me all these questions that I was not ready for. So they, they ranged from like, oh, are you looking to get a master's when you finish? And I'm a freshman sitting there, like just kind of getting started, interested in starting research. And I'm like, well, I guess like, yeah, maybe I'm interested in master's, but maybe I should get through some, some undergrad first. <laughs> and then he brought up, I think he also might've brought a PhD in that same meeting. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> let me, let me get through undergrad and see yeah. if I even like research. And so then he asked like, what kind of research are you interested in? And off the seat of my, I was like, so unprepared for a question like that. Cause I didn't know, I just wanted to kind of like get started and have him give me some ideas of what we can do and maybe develop a project with him. But also it would be cool if he just gave me a project that I could work on. And so I sat there for a minute and I was like, I need to think of an answer. And I was like, uh, well, I don't know. Maybe it's like, would be cool to see why Northern spotted owls are only found in old growth forests versus like, you know, great horned owls that can be found anywhere. He was like, yeah, I mean, that was, it's good that you're thinking of questions like that already. And I just kind of was like, Phew, yeah, it's so great that I'm thinking of questions like that already. Um, and he, he was like, well, I don't have any positions for the summer. I was like, oh, that's okay. Like it's probably like two weeks away from the end of the semester. Like, I didn't think you would. Um, but he was like, I do have a contact in Albuquerque and I can get you in touch with him and you can work with him this summer. Flash forward to me getting in contact with them. It was the migratory bird, like chief from, or I guess it was the national raptor coordinator. Brian Millsap is the national raptor okay. coordinator for U.S. Fish and Wildlife. Um, and he is stationed out of Albuquerque and he has worked on a very long-term Cooper's hawk study looking at urban Cooper's hawks and you know how many are moving in and where they're going and all these things and so I like meet him for the first time and I'm like this guy's like high up in U.S. Fish and Wildlife and there's another person with him and it's Kristen Madden and she's the U.S. Fish and Wildlife migratory bird chief for the southwest okay and so I like I'm just sitting in this truck with them and they're like, yeah, like, what do you want to do? And we're excited to have you out. And they like taught me all these skills. We like set up these mist nets every day. And I met them at like six in the morning at Einstein's and we would go to all these different like public parks and we would set up these nets and people would come up and they'd be like, what are you doing? 
and he would be like, Sophie, you're in charge of those kinds of questions. So I'd like grab a brochure and be like, oh, we're doing this study. <laughs> Just trying to explain. I'm like this 19 year old that they're like talking to. Um, but by the end of the summer, like I was taking them out of the net without getting their talons in my hands. And I was taking blood from them and I was taking feather samples and I knew how to do the full workup. Yeah. And I was yeah. like, yeah, like this this is cool. Like getting to do really hands-on stuff like this. But I also didn't realize because it was just kind of like given to me, kind of like, it was like, here's this person I know, go work for them. How big of an opportunity that was one to like work alongside U.S. Fish and Wildlife, but also the people I was working alongside and getting to work with raptors. It was like, Ooh, straight right away. Were you nervous to do uh, like, field work when you're actually taking blood stuff for the first time i was so nervous to do just basic field work when i was first starting out i was so so nervous everything made me nervous i was like i don't want to let it go but i don't want to hold it too tight and i don't want to do this and especially getting the bird out of the net for the first time was nerve-wracking but i was just quicker than them and so i could like get up and run to the net faster and they're like grab it grab it you know so it doesn't fly out um, but there's like a technique to grabbing raptors, a technique that I had not known. And so I grabbed it and the talons were in my hand and I was like, ah, and they were like, oh no, avoid the talons, like avoid the feet. And I was like, well, too late. Like they're in me already. They don't bite. And so after that, I like knew how to grab it. I was never very good at taking them out of the net. I got better at that when I started doing okay. a lot of songbird, um, banding like learning how to take smaller birds out you get the technique but with the bigger birds they would get so wrapped up that i'd be like i don't even i don't even know what's going on so he would always like come back and grab it from me and get it out the raptors never tried to bite you oh no they would try sometimes there was once where we set up where we were setting up the net like finishing setting up the net and one like dive bombed me Ooh. And luckily, like, just missed me and went straight into the net. And I was still standing right next to the net. So I just, like, grabbed it. I was like, oh, perfect. Like, that was kind of scary, nice. but at least it was, like, quick. So this was your very first experience with field work, doing actual research. Was out there now? Yeah. That was longer term than just, like, a weekend capture. Right. Yeah. Gotcha. And then that same summer, I went out and just volunteered. Um, there was a project going on near Rio Doso, New Mexico, in the Fort Stanton Snowy River Conservation Area, um, where you were looking at pinion juniper thinning and prescribed burning and the effect it had on bird populations out there and density and abundance, um, that I ended up working as a field tech for the next summer. But I went down that year because it was just a two-hour drive, and I was like, I want to go out and just volunteer. And I knew the master's student, and I knew one of the techs out there. And I went out and did like a week of veg sampling with them um and so i got like really the two the two extremes of like really fun like get to band raptors and then also like really hot line transects for a week straight (laughs) so i was like yeah i enjoyed both so i was like yeah i think i can do something with this now the veg stuff is so important though because if we don't know anything about the habitat we can't conserve species right exactly yeah that's one thing a lot of uh aspiring uh biology majors and people that want to be wildlife professionals, they don't realize how much we have to do with plants, you know, like knowing about plants, plant taxonomy, you know, knowing about habitats 
it's like like almost the most important thing you know it's up there yeah i mean almost every project you have that's going to be wildlife based the most important part is going to be the veg surveys because you need to look at the habitat of the wildlife you're working with right so if you're not willing to do or you don't want to do any vegetation work then you're kind of out of luck like you're either going to be doing stuff in a lab or you're not going to be working with wildlife like it's just the way it's going to be because a lot of people they come they want to study wildlife biology because they like animals right and they don't like I had a lot of classmates that really complained a lot about the plant taxonomy classes we had to take. But I, I, I love to understand plants. It, it makes everything make sense. You know, it, it, without plants, yeah. your understanding of ecology is just, is just very limited without an understanding of plants and ecosystems. Yeah. yeah. I mean, our plant ID class, we learned 225 plants maybe, which is a good chunk for a semester. That's a like that's a really significant Mainly, amount, but that's such a small chunk overall right. that it's like, oh, at least I know now how to like go out and ID plants and I know how to kind of like look through the list. You know the and resources and it, but how to key out. Yeah. Really, for biologists, you don't have to know like all the weird, obscure forbs and like rare plants. It's just knowing the, the plants that um, really make up the, the composition of those communities, you know, like the knowing like the big four grasses in Texas, like little blue stem, big blue stem, like stuff like that, you know, or like yeah. you're in East Texas, you know, like a short leaf pine from a long leaf pine and a loblolly pine, because those are going to be different plant communities. So like people get intimidated by the plant stuff that are getting into wildlife, but like, you don't have to know, you know, 500 species of plants. You, you just need to know like this plants that are going to make up that habitat. It seems. Yeah. You need to know the plants that are going to be on your transects. Right. Exactly. And if you don't know them right away, Learn them. somebody does, right? There's always going to be someone yeah. that knows the plant. Or, that you know, you iNaturalist. Have. I use iNaturalist for my job now because I do a lot of wetland delineations and plant ID is a big part of that um, to determine yeah. if a wetland is a wetland or not. I don't, did you take any wetland type classes up there? Or, no. No. <laughs> we're in Lubbock, right? right? So we're, I don't know if it, I'm getting confused on which take I said what, but um, we have this like just circle of despair where <laughs> we're just in kind of like dusty agricultural land. It used to be amazing. And there's though. also like, yeah, no, there is. Grassland. And there's clients there and there's the cap rock escarpment really close. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And if you just leave the main town, there's so much to explore and there's so much beauty in the landscape. I mean, we're in the Southern Great Plains, right? Like we're yeah. in the Great Plains. Like there's just so much around us that's like, that if you know where you are, it's really cool. But if you it's don't, very special. it seems like- I, I used to go up there for um, this event at um, Science Spectrum. I don't know if you're familiar yeah. with it. Yeah. They have, uh, they have Critter Fest every year. And this zoo I used to work at um, goes there and brings crocodiles and alligators and we do shows. And uh, every time I'd go up there, I loved it up there. You know, it is a lot of agriculture. Um, yeah. But if you if you can find like intact prairie, just diverse herps, you know, like all sorts of snakes and and uh, frogs and toads. And then last last year, I went to uh, God, what's it called? It's the oldest refuge in Texas, maybe. Muleshoe. What yeah. is it called? Muleshoe. Muleshoe. I had the most special experience out there watching a storm come in. And I made this friend out there and he's like full-blooded Lipan Apache. And he was like playing his drums and like smoking and stuff. And it was just, nice. it was like really cool. My, my experience in Muleshoe was so cool. Um, 
but like that's what the southern great plains used to look like largely is those just vast grasslands and those playas and those uh salt lakes i can't remember what they call them but just big like weird salt formations out there that support interesting flora and fauna um, yeah, no, cool. people drive through there now out there right now where yeah. we're having to go out there and then develop a management plan oh that's but cool. it's just so expansive cool. that the management plan is like really difficult to make right <laughs> it's yeah. like oh this is just such a large unit of land right. so much you could do on it where we're all kind of struggling but it's just cool like getting to go out there and, and see it i mean there's so many sandhill cranes that migrate through there like when yeah. we were there the first time we just had like tons flying over us and then we were in a certain part of the refuge on a, on a certain unit and we just saw them all out like eating and resting and whatever St. Hills do when they're just right. bebopping around on fields. But <laughs> now you got to do some, fun. some like, research with sand hills, right? Yeah. I went to Oregon um, okay. last spring break and we did a sandhill crane capture for greater sand hills. We were putting transmitters on them, GSM transmitters, okay. where they are the ones that like connect to the satellites and you can get like kind of a constant flow. It's of, not like, uh, I got you. That's yeah. more, more of the high tech um, sort of uh, tracking. It's not like telemetry, basic yeah. telemetry. We so got to go out there. We were there, yeah, over spring break and we were really successful. I think we caught seven or eight that trip um, and got some bands on them and let them go. Um, but that was really awesome. It was, it's dinosaurs. tough though. Um, Actual dinosaurs. <laughs> Yeah, literally, because we we drive up there in one day from tech. So it's a 24 hour drive um, and we have like a few people in each vehicle that like switch off. And I was so excited to get to Oregon and work with Sandhill Crane. So like I cannot sleep. Was this with a professor at tech? Yeah, so this was a master's students project location. So Haley Dissenberg. She is the master student on the project, and there was a PhD student on the project too, but she just finished up. Mm. Um, and they go up there, and she's there in the summer too, collecting data. But it's under Dr. Grisham, so okay. we go up through through him essentially. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a long drive, and I had the last shift, so from like two to eight a.m., I was just like slapping my leg, like <laughs> gotta keep these people alive. Like we're so close, well, you know. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm fine. Like I, I don't like driving tired. Um, but if I'm by myself, you know, I'll push it sometimes, mm-hmm. but when I have people with me, I get nervous. Cause like driving tired is almost as like worse than driving intoxicated. <laughs> it can get really bad. I know. Yeah. It I've was, had some it scary was fun moments. The first hours, but yeah. the last we got into the grand, which is where we did the, the, um, capture. And I mean, we had 20 minutes left and I was like, okay. To the person who was sitting next to me, I was like, you need to start asking me questions. Like <laughs> I've been talking to you this whole time. Like you need right. to start talking to me. Yeah. So I was at the end, I was like, just zonked. I was done. I was so not ready to set up lines right when we got there, there, but we did. How did y'all catch the sandhills? We used rocket nets. Wow. So we set up rocket nets, but sandhills are so much smarter than turkeys, right? Yeah, we they're, also use rocket they're a hunted, they're very hunted species. Heavily yeah. hunted species. And so we set up the rocket nets and then there's the actual net and we had to like camouflage it well. Or they would have been so suspicious. And did y'all wear actual rockets? So we were in blinds that had been out for a long time. So they were they they were used used to to them being out there. Um, And then the blinds we did set up, they were camouflaged too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, But 
yeah, I'm trying to think. And then we put out the bait and they're like a little unsure of it at first, but you bait for so much longer than like the day of capture right. that you'll get them to come up and you'll wait for them to get on it and get into the little sweet spot and put their heads down and shoot over them. But right. it's a really, it's a really cool experience just to be in a blind where the rockets shot off. I don't know if you've ever done anything with rocket netting, but have not. It's it's pretty cool. Yeah, it seems like at this point, like all of your. Ex- most of your experiences with birds is that going to is that going to characterize your career bird uh bird work yeah i've had a lot i've had a lot of bird experience for yeah. sure i've worked with a lot of songbirds turkeys sandhill cranes different raptor species gosh i'm trying to think of what else um but i've had like a few shorter experiences with mammals okay so i i did the coyote capture my sophomore year where we put on a bunch like 34 GPS scholars on coyotes and East Foundation Ranch. And I've done a few of the deer, white-tailed deer captures down at the East Foundation as well. Um, so Isn't I have experience with other things, but oh yeah. Which, East found, which ranches, ranches have you been are, to? You've been to El Sol's? I've been to, yeah. So That's I've been to best. El Sol's and I've that, been to San Antonio Viejo. Blows my mind. It's unlike any other place in Texas. No, it was amazing. So this was our first year going this past fall. That was our first time in El Sol's. And it was amazing. Like when I was in the UTVs going to pick up the deer that had been like hobbled and yeah. shot from the net. Um, I We were like in this like coastal prairie, like it was yeah. amazing. And then we were like on sand dunes and we could, it was just the coolest thing ever. But I also loved San Antonio Viejo because that was the first time I had ever seen a green jay. Cause okay. I'm not yeah. anywhere near you know, South Texas ever. Like that's a long drive from Lubbock and I'm not yeah. from Texas. And when I first went down there, I was like, I want to see a green Jay. Like, yeah. that's what I want to see. It's the only thing I want to see on this trip other than like the job at hand. And the last day we were there, like this just like flying ball of like green, just like passed me. And I was like, Oh my God, like it was a green Jay. Yeah. And I never saw one after, but I saw it that one time and I'll never forget it. Yeah. It's my favorite. There's some amazing birds down there in South Texas. The green oh, yeah. jays, they green jays really are cool they're really common and like I love to see them. But they also got like Orioles, several Orioles you can see down there. The mm-hmm. Chachalacas, those they're uh, they're in the same yeah. uh, order as uh, the, uh, some of the other upland game birds. Um, I think they're they're a lot of fun to watch. Yeah. I don't know. It's just it's amazing down there in South Deep South Texas. Like once you get along the Rio Grande. It's really an amazing place. Um, it, it is. I'm glad I got to spend a little bit of time down there um, yeah. just doing different volunteer research. That was with the Wildlife capture. Society? Yeah. Was so those were, those were through the Wildlife Society. Yeah, gotcha. Most of the capture events I've gone on have been through the Wildlife Society. And then personal research or like summer research has been like the more raptors and songbird stuff. Um, gotcha. I did a project on cormorants. That's what I published on. And then I did my prairie chicken project. So all the research I've done has been focused on birds, but like not just a specific type. It's been like a really big range. And and one of your, so far, just the one has been published, the cormorants. Yeah. So the cormorants was like my, my research project. Um, It was a Texas parks and wildlife pilot project that they needed done um, just so they had the information. To be honest, and not to like talk down about my research, 
but it's pretty boring. Like, I think I know about it because I think Madeline Thornley did some former at work when she was up there. So she, she did Warbird or like Waterbird stuff at the Ply Lakes. Okay. And cormorants were there. Oh, but, she, she talked about um, cormorants at some point or she mentioned Texas Tech did a, like some cormorant research in urban areas or something. I don't know. Yeah, she was my, she yeah. was my ornithology TA. Nice. So, uh, so she I was got, probably referring to my project because I started maybe, it. Maybe. I started it that spring of COVID. So my sophomore, okay, I see. Like spring semester was when I first started like the data collection, kind of like data mining through Christmas bird counts to figure okay. out where cormorants were throughout Texas and like where they were distributed because all the distribution maps are pretty old at this point it seems because there are definitely resident colonies in lubbock but if you're looking at these distribution maps i mean it it doesn't show them this far north um so we we first just had to figure out the distribution of where they were and then i would go to dallas which is not super close to lubbock like it's five six hours from lubbock um and that was that was later so that was then my junior year at the end of my fall semester and then throughout the spring semester um every few weeks when they would do fish stocking at the lakes i would drive to dallas and there were it was hard for many reasons but it was a lot of driving to get to these community lakes so i would drive to dallas and then i would go and survey the lakes and each lake was pretty far apart so the surveys were like mostly driving a little bit of surveying okay that's rough. And I wasn't 21 yet either. So when I would go then to the hotel, which that sounded like I was about to talk about drinking, but I wasn't. Um, when I would go to the hotel, I sometimes would be like, have to kind of fight with them to get a hotel room. Really? <laughs> so it was just like a frustrating experience sometimes. Yeah. And because I all my classes were online, I would get, Dr. Bull would be, he would be like, oh, well, you can go on Thursday because your classes are online and then just come back on Saturday or Sunday like we normally do. Oh, so like, still rough. Okay, okay. Class. Sounds good. <laughs> so yeah. I would go on Thursday and then I would come back and I had a technician working with me. Um, but to begin with, she wasn't approved to drive. And because it was so much driving just to get to the get to Dallas, then to get to all the lakes, there were days where I, I would get back to the hotel and I'd be like, okay, don't talk to me. Like I just take time to like completely decompress from like all this city driving. What kind of data were you collecting? So we were looking at how cormorants respond to fish stocking. Okay. So we would go to these lakes and it would be before fish stocking happened and we would just survey the amount there. So we would survey them if they were sitting or if they were swimming um, we would look at anthropogenic features. So we would look at how many people were around and how many dogs are around and all that fun stuff. And then we would also do observational periods. And this was very dependent and it was very dependent on if cormorants were swimming or not. So if they were all perched up, we couldn't do any observational periods okay. and just surveying them alone took about five seconds. <laughs> so it would be like, okay, get back in the truck. Yeah. We're going to the next lake. Um, but when we did observational periods we would watch one cormorant for five minutes count how many times it dived count how many times it caught a fish um and from other research they have a really high success rate hunting yeah 
and we just, we had them kind of having a low success rate hunting. And so we had to just kind of make the assumption of like, not every dive is for food. Like there might be diving for other reasons that we just aren't aware of. And because we don't have like, you know, cameras following them, we don't know once they, once they go in the water to us, that's going to be a foraging dive, no matter what. Um, and we had one, we had, so we had three control lakes and then three lakes that were stocked. Okay. And it was fairly, I mean, it was, it was really evident that the cormorant counts following fish stocking, the numbers increased. Yeah. They, they knew within a day. TPWD is trying to figure out how to manage cormorants to, for the fisheries industry. Right. Is that, yeah. is that what it is? Yeah. Because they do have a, they do have yeah. an impact on, on fisheries. And they're mm-hmm. like, there's probably more cormorants now because of all the new lakes we built with a bunch of fish in them. Is that what, I don't know if that's in the literature, but it seems like yeah. no, that has benefited from, from humans. And so they're looking at lethal management and they just needed some information, just some simple information where it's like, yeah, cormorants are more common at these lakes after it's stocked. Like right. that's what they needed to know. Yeah. Um, so overall, it was just a lot of assumable information that they just needed in writing. Yeah. Uh, but it was a cool project and there were certain points where we would be observing them and you know the fishermen would be trying to catch their fish and the cormorants would be in the water and you would hear them just like cussing out the cormorants when they came up with the fish and I'd be like yeah because it's so much more fun for me watching them catch fish right. than just like hey dive number 10 <laughs> like you know cool birds all... it's easy yeah. to get like jaded on like common species like cormorants but like they're like they're adapted cool. to dive underwater and catch fish. It's pretty badass. And yeah, I saw recently, I was driving down the road and I saw like a whole flock of them hunting together in this pond. They were swimming around. There's like maybe a dozen of them working this bank. And like, I don't know if that's a behavior y'all, y'all observed, but like a group hunting behavior. Yeah. So for the most part, I would only see... We didn't have huge colonies at any of these lakes because okay. the lakes weren't huge themselves. These were just okay. community lakes that were stocked for fish. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we actually had, and this was part of the reason why some of the data was a little wacky. Um, one of our control lakes had, it must have been a roosting colony. So there was just always a ton of cormorants there at this control lake. And so that just kind of skewed a little bit of the data that we had. Right. But um, they that's where I would see that kind of same hunting technique that you're talking about where they all would be swimming together and you would just see like dives yep. kind of randomly but like also where like one comes up and then one goes down and then it just seems it looks like very they coordinated what they were doing. yeah it looks yeah. Very, really fascinating to see that um mm-hmm. so that that's really cool you got a publication out of that must have felt really good <laughs> it did i got it in the mail just a few days ago and getting to like actually hold it and see it i was like oh this is so exciting really good. Like, this is my name on there first like this is Especially, you know, with um, aspirations for grad school. And I, I don't know what beyond that, what you're aspiring to do, but it seems like research is uh, in academia is up your alley. Yeah, for sure. I, I would love to go and work for a research station, um, like Rocky Mountain Research Station, Albuquerque Leopold Wilderness Institute, just one of those things where I can, you know, work on research and also kind of be tied to a university in a way where okay, I can like yeah. still mentor people, but not have you don't to be work fully in, in the like university. Admin. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I just, I hate, balance. like, I've just seen a lot of like admin work get thrown at professors 
And it's like, this isn't what you're here for, you know? That's, like, not, that's not wildlife biology. <laughs> but that's not like what they started doing this for. And and sometimes I'm like, oh, that's just brutal. You know, like that's not what, I don't want to do that. Like I want right. to run a research lab and get yeah. to do research and like mentor students and teach. And I don't want to have to like then go and move along into the admin side. So a research station would be cool. You. But you never know, like, there's yeah. you have to be adaptable with your dream job especially in this field for sure. because for sure one dream job pops up like every few years and then one person gets it you know so you just have to be like oh well i'll tell you new dream job for me my dream was just to work with crocs and you know i've gotten to do that but it turns out there's not a lot of very sustainable jobs working with crocodilians so i'm not exactly yeah. doing my dream job right now you know i'm working at a consulting firm but it's close yeah. enough, you know, I still get to spend a lot of time in the field and my plant animal knowledge is still um, very useful. So yeah, you gotta, you gotta be adaptable, you know? Yeah. You gotta sure. figure out a way to enjoy what you're doing, right? Yeah. Like you can't, you can't take a job or be in a job where everything you do is just miserable. Like yeah, life's too short for that. You gotta either make, you either got to make the most of the job you're in, or you just need to figure out something else. Right. Whether that's in or out of the field. Right. It's kind of crazy to think like you, <clears throat> you went to Texas tech, uh, you probably go in there. You didn't know anything about their NRM program, but it turns out you went to like one of the best programs in the country. <laughs> I know like, it really chance. was just like pure. Well, I don't, I hate like calling it luck. Cause there was a few times where I've yeah. been like, Oh, I was just so lucky that like, I knew the people I knew and they yeah. gave me this and they gave me that. And then I was like, no, like, you have to give yourself some credit, you know, no. right? So put yourself in the right place to be lucky. Majoring in this, this was like random. Like yeah. there was, I didn't know Texas Tech was a university before I moved to Albuquerque. Yeah. Like I didn't know any of the stuff. I just applied to it as a backup school and I had friends going there. Like actually getting into this program was lucky. Like right. this was, it was a series of fortunate events. And then right. it just kind of continued on my entire undergrad. I'll tell you, you know, so I went to AM and um and while there, I, I like to try to talk to other um, undergraduate students from different universities, from SFA, uh, U at Tech, um, and people from Sol Ross, Texas State. It seems like Tech and SFA are like two of the best for getting a uh, experience doing research as an undergrad is what I found. And that's reflected by like, I don't know, I'm meeting y'all, but people like you, but also y'all's like the wildlife society stuff is yeah. uh, so much bigger. Um, A&M has a pretty good wildlife society program and I, I never was involved with it because I'm so busy. Um, it just seems like tech and, and SFA are really good. If like people listening, if you're interested in going to a school, we're going to get really good hands-on research. It seems like those two schools are up there you know, just from my observations, Definitely. you know, I enjoyed AM and Definitely. I got good experience there, but it, it took a lot more effort to get my foot in the door and I didn't get it into my senior year, you know? Yeah. I mean, everyone just wants to, and I hate to put these words in. I personally always just wanted to help other people out because like I had all those upperclassmen helping right. me out right away. So anytime someone came in and they were interested, I was like, let me show you anything you want to show, like right. see or learn, or, you know, if you want to talk to this professor, like I'll introduce you. Right. Um, but that's just how most of us are in the department because that's how our professors are. Like they are there to help us. They want to give us opportunities and we work really hard, especially in our wildlife society to have like one big event each semester, that's right. like hands-on opportunity. Right. So 
first semester is usually going down and helping Kingsville with the white-tailed deer captures. And then this semester we had a few turkey captures in Junction. And I luckily, um, because I do have a good relationship with Dr. Bull, I was able to talk him into doing like a three-day miss many workshop with members. And so they all get to learn how to do bird banding. And that's just like things that we get to like move along. But this semester I was so excited because I was like, it's the first semester with like no COVID guidelines. Like we can finally go back to normal. It's been like, I, I mean, I've been the president for two years and yeah. last year stunk. Like last year was the worst. It was online meetings. We could have a few events, but like, even then they weren't, they weren't great. Um, and so then this year I was like, it's going to be so good. And in yeah. the fall, we still had like lots of COVID guidelines. And I was like, Oh, this, what the heck? Like, this yeah. is the worst. And so this semester I kind of overbooked us a little. Um, I just like, was like, we need an event all the time, all the time. Like we yeah. just need something going on. And so personally, like I'm also a little burnt out from the amount of events, like I've been going to for the wildlife society this semester, but I had to cancel one this weekend. Cause we had like two on the same day and we didn't have enough Uh-oh. volunteers for the second one. So I was like, oops, like, sorry guys, <laughs> I guess I, I did too much, <laughs> got too yeah. excited. Um, but yeah, we just, we have a good program and we have really invested professors and we have a lot of opportunities for research and they're mostly avian based. Um, yeah, that's what it seems a like. A lot of our professors, kind of yeah, a lot of our professors do focus on uh, birds, which isn't a problem. You can always find, you know, a bird you like to work with and go for it. But there's also a lot of professors that work with herps and there's professors that you can try to get into and you know work with some mammals but if you're interested in birds especially there's a lot of bird research that is done at tech and it's all very cool from a very biased source that has done a lot of bird research (laughs) yeah bird birds are uh birds are so important you know it's it's good there's people out there that are passionate about studying them and conserving them you know it seems like um at texas tech like the NRM department, I guess, do they have herpetologists there? Cause I know there's Lou Densmore in the biology department. Yeah. So we have Densmore in the bio department and then we have Carrie Griffiths, Kyle, Dr. KGK, who does a lot in the Sonoran desert with okay. uh, tortoises and frogs and different things like that. Uh, I don't know much about that research, but I do know that it goes on. Um, and then we have Dr. Gad Perry, who I don't know if he has any active research, but he's a herpetologist as well. Okay, um, and he's like the big kind of like conservation science professor that we I have. You. I got yeah. you. So I've done some, um, I've done some croc work with um, grad students that are in the Densmore lab. And um, yeah. like Densmore is like one of the top crocodilian guys in the world. Uh, it so happens mm-hmm. to be the case. Um, but yeah, I, I came to realize that he's not in fact in the NRM. He's, in a different department right yeah so he's in bio he is very cool i have a friend and she her dream has just been always to work with alligators and she was like i'll never be able to do it and i was like um have you ever talked to densmore she was like who's that (laughs) i was like okay let me get you in contact with this guy because i think you'll be able to like find a way to work with alligators like if he likes you and if you you know work up and so this summer she's she gets to go out and help the master students that data. Oh, that's cool. But she's so excited. I'm like, yeah, so I'm excited too. Like, I want to go out and help. <laughs> well, he had a, um, I forget his name now. Um, 
he has a PhD student that's doing a ton of alligator work or he's finishing up now. But last summer I went out with him like three or four times down here in Houston. And it was just like pure, like catching alligators all night long from sunup to sundown uh, or sundown to sunup, like all night long. And uh, it was yeah, a lot of fun, like cool. just catching like 20, 30 alligators in a night for his project. It was awesome. <laughs> I felt bad. I was like, surely there's got to be some like Texas, te- Texas Tech undergraduate students that, you know, w- would want to do this. Um, but I don't know. It's, it's different. You know, with some crocodilian work, it's, it's really dangerous. So it's not like super sure. yeah. like, <laughs> friendly for uh, people that are not, not as experienced. But yeah, it's alligator work is a lot of fun. If you ever get a chance to do anything with crocodilians, which, you know, it's a, they're considered herps, but honestly, they're more closely related to birds. It's a nice carryover from birds, you know? Well, we learn about like the Archosaur alligators in our big game class. So I always kind of think of them as more of a mammal, which I definitely shouldn't, but everything else in the big game class is a mammal. So I'm like, well, you know, alligators. (laughs) What what were some of the, uh, your favorite classes you got to take? Oh, number one favorite class was restoration ecology easy like that's a good class I was so disappointed because that was that was the class that was sophomore spring semester 2020 that we got cut off on Um, but up before that like we got to learn about all these case studies and we learned about all the ins and outs of restoration ecology and we had this like small plot of land near Lubbock where we had to make a restoration plan and unlike Muleshoe, it was not overwhelming at all. It was just this like small area. We knew about seeding. We knew about seeding rates. We learned all these techniques. Um, we knew exactly what to do, like what we wanted to do. Uh, we got to really choose whatever, like we were looking at adding more um, pollinators in. So we had like certain plants we wanted to put in. Wildflowers. And just the whole process of making the restoration plan, it just made like, I think me and my group be like, oh my gosh, like we can do this. Like this is something that like, we just did this plan yep. and it like did it well. And like, we could actually have like used this to restore this area if we had the resources, which right. we didn't. But I think that was definitely one of my favorite. Dr. Cox taught that. He's like our, kind of our big range. He t- teaches all the plant classes. He's range, range, range land ecology type stuff. Yeah. Um, and so he, he also taught the plant ID class, which I really liked. Um, I took a raptor ecology class with Dr. Bowl. That's badass. Yeah. We didn't have raptor ecology at AM. <laughs> so it's a grad student class, but because I'm in his lab, he was like, Yeah, I'll you can take, take it. it. And I was like, awesome. I will. <laughs> um, but that was also like during the virtual semesters. So we didn't get to go out and like trap like we normally do. But luckily, like I had I've done kestrel trapping out in Lubbock and I've done the Cooper Sock stuff. So I was like, okay, like I guess that's fine. But right. we like learned how to ID every North American raptor. And it was just a very cool class. Like raptors have such different behaviors and morphology and just all this stuff than songbirds. And it was just, it was cool getting to focus on them for a whole semester. Yeah. Um, there's just been like a lot of kind of random classes that I've enjoyed. And then there's been classes that I've taken and I've been like, oh, I thought I was really going to like that. And I didn't. So it's just been a grab bag of, of classes and we have such a, a variety um that we can take and some are really helpful and some you're like oh wait <laughs> i actually don't really enjoy that that much <laughs> so it's good it's you know, good thing, you get to figure uh, out what you like i was like i would i would uh put a lot of thought into like what classes i was going to take and 
I'm like really passionate about like taking ornithology and herpetology and dendrology and all this. And I, I enjoyed all those classes. And, um, but what I've come to realize is they don't really matter that much. It's all the field experiences, what actually carries over into your career. I mean, I think they have a cumulative effect on your general base understanding of ecology and different animal groups, but I I cared more about them than I should have, I think, (laughs) you know? Yeah, I totally agree. The problem is with classes is they're very conceptual, right? Right. All classes are conceptual, but you need to be able to carry that over into real life, hands-on management. And sometimes it's hard to do that from just concepts and a course. And it's much easier when you have a field job focusing on uh, vegetation where you have to do plan ID while you're doing transects. And it's just, it. I like tell everyone that I know, they're like, we are gonna take summer classes this semester. And I'm like, don't like- Get field experience. Take a little longer and go and get a summer internship. Like don't take summer classes if you don't have to, like go, go get an experience and get that on your resume and figure out what you like and what you don't. Did you ever take a soils class, Andrew? I did not. Um, I had the opportunity to, and I am interested in soils, but I did not take soils. Probably I should. I (laughs) have tried to get out of taking a soils class every semester of my undergrad, every single semester. Why? It's not. And I finally classes. I. It sounded terrible. I was like, I don't care about soil. It didn't. Nothing about it clicked. And Mm. I took one last semester. And I loved it. I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. This is so fun. We like learned how to like classify soil. And in the lab, we were like ribboning it. And I was like, okay, why why did I put this off for so long? Like, I wish I could take another one. Did you learn about like geology in that class or like the origin of soils? That's the stuff I'm interested in. Like I learned about that in just my own free time, just because it's like interesting. Like East Texas has all these different plant communities because there's different soils there. And like what influenced these soil these geologic formations and a lot of it's like has to do with uh sea level like uh the ocean was like really far up in east texas a long time ago and there's like bands of sand that formed there and like stuff like that's cool but in the soil class i don't know if you actually learned that sort of stuff so we we learned a little bit about it at the very beginning yeah. this was just like an intro soils class okay, yeah. but you have to take the red rank but i was like where can i sub it how can i sub it and then i took it and i was like why is this the best class um but we learned a little bit about geology at the beginning and then it really, we didn't learn a bunch about it. It would have been cool to learn a little, a little bit more, but honestly, like I kind of enjoyed like the soil chemistry part of it, which as a person that like didn't really enjoy their oh, chemistry classes, I, hate chemistry. I was like, dang, this yeah. is, why is this better than the rest of the stuff I've learned? Maybe it's more because it's more applied. <laughs> it's like actually For relevant sure. information. Like when yeah. I took OCHEM, I was like, why, why am I learning this? This is not going to help me in my career. Ugh. I don't understand natural systems any better now. You know, no, and I, uh, I still don't, I never even understood OCHEM while I was taking it. I, I don't, <laughs> I don't, it. didn't and don't still. <laughs> yeah, it, that was a tough one. I yeah. also took that the first semester. So I got out of that, that spring semester of first COVID where all the professors didn't know what they were doing and online classes were so easy. And I was like, oh, well then online classes just must be easy. And I'll just pack my schedule for the next fall and just get a bunch of my hard classes out of the That's way. I did. It was successful for me. And, I took OCHEM oh. in the COVID times and it was very easy. So oh, it was not successful for me. <laughs> I took like mammalogy, OCHEM, range cool. plant, 
all these classes oh, that's a that stacked that's a stacked people, semester and I, I had 18 hours of like two taxonomy classes junior level classes oh, no. <laughs> so I was like dying but Ochem we had it hybrid so I had like one lecture a week and then one was online and the other half of the class went um and I was like no this will be easy I did fine in the class and then we would take the exams online in our rooms like with Proctorio or whatever the online testing system is and I mean, the first test I got like a 68 on and I was so devastated. I was like, this is so bad. I've never done so bad on a test. The next test I got a 48 on and I was like, you know what? Who cares? Like move on. And as long as you're doing like, as, as whatever. bad as the rest of the students, that's all that matters. For sure. you know, everybody exactly. they can't fail the whole class. That's what I learned. And that's what but, I went back to because he would yeah. say the average for the test. He was like, the average was a 50. And I was like, just oh, two good. points under. I'm good. I'm good. You know, like. We actually no got to use Google on ours, but it doesn't matter because OKIM, it oh. hardly matters to figure out those problems. You got to like actually understand the material. Yeah. So we'd all I couldn't even read for... the like structures. <laughs> he would give us a structure and I'd be like, I don't know what this means or how to understand it. So I guess I'll just guess. Yeah. And I did. <laughs> I wish. So I was that's just frustrating because I like understanding me too you know like i want to understand yeah. and so being in a class where the whole time for a full semester i'm just like kind of lost oh i just that was the worst that's part of the i almost went to sfa because their wildlife program doesn't have any of organic chemistry or even physics it, it's a forestry um major with wildlife management focus which that's like excellent and thinking back now like stuff that's actually relevant to to be a successful person in the natural resource field like a lot of those classes they take at sfa are really good instead of taking like physics and organic chemistry and which that's probably better for grad school and if you want to pursue research in academia but probably still pointless <laughs> like we don't have to take physics and i think we're trying to take okay out of the course like courses that we need but i wish we had a forestry class but we just don't have any forests or trees There's around. No so it's like, where would we go? You know, right. like I I wish I could have learned more about other ecosystems. kind of ecosystems yeah. other than the the Great Plains and yeah. the Southern kinda, Great Plains. But that's just what we had, and right. it'll be relevant. And you can always, when you know how to learn about plants, you can take that's that true. and move to another. You don't area. have to, you know, like you're not going to memorize every plant you learned in those classes. It's just knowing yeah. how to like go back and ID stuff or honestly just using iNaturalist is what I do now for work. <laughs> when I don't know plants. I just pull up an area and type in the genera. I think it's in um, the genus and like, it's pretty easy to narrow it down. You know, I like, I like knowing the plants right off the bat. I, I enjoy knowing plants, but there's so many plants. You can't know them all, all the time. It's just, especially the grasses and the sedges and all the like yeah. they're all the same they all look the same <laughs> i guess you all had a lot of grasses in your range class huh yeah we had 225 or we had 225 i believe but we would split it up where it was like 30 a week hmm. and then or it would be like 25 roughly a week and then you would add five random ones from past weeks onto our quizzes and so it was like every tuesday night before our wednesday quiz i would just be like I would go from my watershed class that was from 6 to 9 p.m. And I'd go straight into the plant ID room and just like study for like two more hours and just have all the plant specimens out on the tables. And I would post about it a lot complaining because right. I was just 
always tired and never wanted to look at another plant. But then every Tuesday I was like, okay, back we go. Like looking at all these herbarium specimens and this, this semester, like I don't have that. And I was like, I kind of miss going and studying all the plants on Tuesday. I miss, I miss those, 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 uh, study those, like you're stressed out and you're studying and like in the moment, I'm like, gosh, this sucks. But now when I think back, I graduated last summer, so it hasn't even been that long, but I already miss those like long study sessions, like getting ready for a plant test or, a, you know, yeah. any of the ology classes. It's like good memories, you know, learning. Plus like I was always with a few friends and we would always, we needed to know family, species, genus, maybe. Yeah. 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 And tribe. And so we would need to think of like ways to memorize all these names in one night. Slowly, you know, like got worse and worse at studying before we went to see the plants. So we would like think of all the the stupid ways to memorize a name and come up with acronyms and stuff. Yeah. Actually, the way that taxonomy works helped me a lot to know plants, like the way they're grouped and families Mm -hmm. and and genera. And it always uh, clicked with me. Like I always did well in the taxonomy classes because it, I, I like the way it's organized or something. I don't know. It helps you understand. Yeah. Like, uh, I'm just good at memorizing stuff. Right, and so right. if I put enough time in, like I could learn it. And then in mammalogy, which I did not have a good time in mammalogy. I partially because of my lab TA and partially for other reasons, but um, we would have like the, the week we did bats we had just had every bat species out on the tables and there's just so many. And there was just no way that in a week I was going to be able to memorize them all unless I was like looking at factors that weren't actually able to ID them in the field. Right. So these specimens, they weren't perfect. Like they, oh, they yeah. had issues. So sometimes some would be like a little more yellow or this one would have like a ripped wing yeah. or this one would have, you know, this deformity and that's how I memorized them. And so now looking back, I'm like, Oh yeah. Like, I did not memorize those right. the way I should have at all. Like field and yeah, that's a, my ornithology class was the same way. You know, these, these old specimens that like, they're not going to use the like best research specimens for a class yeah. with students handling them. So we'd get like, you know, old beat up birds and stuff. And uh, some of them aren't really representative of what you're going to look for in the field, you know, when you're IDing them, but you still get the basic understanding, I guess. And it's cool to be able to, get them in hand, you know, rather than just looking at a PowerPoint slide. Just a photo. The photos right. are so hard. Right. Especially with uh, birds. Cause a lot of times they'll just show you like the breeding male. Right. And the breeding male birds. is not always what anything else looks like. Like the females don't always look like the males. And sometimes the males don't even look like the males. So it's like, what? That's a, the complicated thing about birds is they go through their plumage changes throughout the year. Yeah, makes it makes it much more difficult, you know. Um, what do you know about um, like for so you have a position ready uh, for grad school? Uh-huh. Like you've already got accepted. What are you going to be studying? Have we talked? So about I will be like I said, I'll be in the Grand Canyon this summer, and my project that I'm getting paid for is assessing visitor flow and spatial distribution of recreational ecosystem services. Um, So we're kind of just looking at like visitor use patterns and visitor perceptions of safety in the park. And we're giving out GPS like data loggers to visitors um, to see like where they're going and when they're off trail and the density of visitors and crowding and stuff like that. Um, 
And so that is more, the more social science aspect of my project. So I'm kind okay. of transitioning over into like this human dimensions of natural okay. resources in this recreation and wilderness lab. Okay. Um, but the whole time that I was applying for grad positions, it was really important to me to be able to tie in ecology. So whether that was plants, soils, like water, wildlife, right. any of the things, I wanted to be able to tie that in and to kind of have like this recreation ecology project. Um, because as much as I love wildlife, um, a lot of the projects are very hunting and fishing based with mm -hmm. stakeholders. And, and that's just not <laughs> something that I grew up doing. Right. And so my stake in a lot of these projects when I was looking through them, I was just like not as interested as I felt like I should have been. And I do have a much greater stake in hiking and backpacking and right. mountain biking and all these things More that like I really enjoy doing. And I was like, let's see how I can tie that to the natural sciences. Right. And so there is a field and it's called recreation ecology. And there's a few like recreation ecologists across the United States. Okay. Um, and so when I kind of took on, I had two offers for grad school and one was at Oregon state. And then one was at university of Montana and Oregon state's project had an ecology aspect. We were, it was on the Deschutes river. It was a visitor use project, but you were also like looking at how visitors affected the landscape. Um, and then there was a, a little bit of wildlife I could have tied in. And so when I had my meeting with my soon to be advisor, Dr. Rice, I was talking to him and I was like, you know, I really like you and I really like the lab and I, the project is awesome. Like it's in the Grand Canyon. The visitor stuff seems interesting to me, like getting to kind of map spatially where people are and density and different things like that. I was like, I'm interested in, is there any way we can tie in ecology? Right. And so he was like, actually, um, the Grand Canyon has been wanting to use all this telemetry data they have from elk and mountain lion on the South Rim that they have from COVID when no one was in the park. He's like, so you could use the visitor data you have from where really? visitors are going with their GPS. And then you can compare it to the telemetry data from the elk and mountain lion. And you can assess, you know, how recreationists affect the movement of these species on the rim. That's really fascinating. Like, okay. Yeah. Like That's really fascinating. Consider me in. Like I'll apply and like, this is, this is my project. Like, this is what I want to do. So I have that as my project. And he's like, that can be your thesis if you want. And I'm like, it will be like, that will be my thesis. That's really that sounds cool. awesome. Um, and so when I was actually at Texas chapter, someone was asking me about my project and I, I started with the social science stuff because that's like the main part of the project. Right. And they were kind of like, oh, interesting, mm -hmm. you know, because they know me as like a wildlife student. They probably expected me to be like in a purely wildlife. I figured like, you're going to do birds, more birds. <laughs> exactly. And that's kind of what everyone was like confused on. And then I brought in the wildlife part and they're like, you should really start with that. And I was yeah. like, yeah, but that's just like part of it. Like, I want to tell you everything that I'm doing. Right. Um, but yeah, it's really cool. And now like uh, he doesn't, he's not a wildlife biologist but University of Montana has a really good wildlife biology program. Yep. And so I'm like his now token, like person who's interested in human wildlife interactions and stuff like well, that. And so you're filling a, a new, a new niche there that like you get yeah. to be a, a very novel experience for you and, it's, and can give you a lot of uh, notoriety. It's know. really awesome because he now like as this token wildlife student yeah. that he has any project that kind of comes in that has ties to wildlife he'll like email me and be like hey this would be a side project but would right. you be interested 
and helping the biologists at the Aldo Leopold Wilderness Institute, which is connected to the school, um, work on this project that we're like working on together. And it's with mountain bike trails and the game trails with grizzly bear and black bears. And they're like looking at how the movement's affected. And I'm like, yeah, if it has to do with bears, I'm like, I'm all over, I want to work with bears. So now I like already had these connections with wildlife biology professors there and the researchers at these different institutes. And I'm like, probably going to get to collaborate a lot with other wildlife uh, researchers and stuff. That's going to be really cool. I'm I'm excited to see how that, that works out for you. I'm, I'm excited to see how it works out as well. Um, I have a meeting with some of the biologists from the Grand Canyon and then uh, my advisor in the PI over at Penn State next week. And so that's the first time I'll get to meet like everyone I'll be working with for at least the summer. Yeah. And so that's exciting too. Really exciting. Yeah. Is there a lot of literature on, on the uh, like recreational uh, ecology stuff? So recreation ecology is a newer field. It, it kind of started up in the nineties or the eighties. It's one of those two chunks of years. Um, and when I, when I was looking, there's about like five people that like explicitly call themselves recreation ecologists, uh, which made it even more interesting for me. Cause I was like, Oh, I can go in there and just like blow it up. You know, like there's all these opportunities and all these parks and wilderness areas and just all these places that are public land. Um, that, I mean, I can, I can really figure out what I want to research and, right. and make it work, but, um, so many questions to answer, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Really and cool. I mean, and it's so many things, right. It's not just focusing on wildlife. Like if there's, I would personally like to focus on wildlife, yeah. but I can also look at, you know, plant communities and yeah. soil structure and different things all around. Humans like, are influencing recreation. when they're recreating out in yeah. a non-consumptive way. These aren't hunters. Yeah. These aren't fisher people they're hikers mainly that well, that's what you're interested in how how hiking and just people moving across these landscapes are influencing the the natural communities right exactly yeah and with especially such a big boom of recreation happening post covid it's becoming more important to look at these things yeah. because these landscapes even with management are becoming degraded right yeah. like national parks are doing those permit systems now because they're just such a huge amount of people coming through that the park itself can't handle it like the parks are getting loved to death but it's the same with state parks and wilderness areas and other places that don't have as much management to begin with where we need to go and look and make sure that like okay are is there a limit is there a capacity that it can hit right before everything just kind of starts to fully degrade and And it it's as simple as um for a lot of it is as simple as uh higher uh volume of foot traffic just increases the erosion of these mm-hmm. sensitive plant communities right yeah that's a yeah. big part of it right yeah you can yep. see it you can see it in, in heavily trafficked areas and state parks where people are especially like making their own trails and stuff yeah the so landscape trails, is eroding a lot of people are studying social trails right now and those are just where people like maybe there's a log in the way and so people start going around so, it yeah. then so many creates, people go around it creates a there's problem. a new trail yeah. And then there's with the Grand Canyon specifically, there are a lot, especially on the rims where it's front country area. I mean, there's a lot of railings, but people are jumping over the railings to yep. get a better view where the view is going to be the same no matter what. <sighs> and they're falling off, you know, the canyon. No. Like there's like actual safety concerns yeah. of like jumping these areas and going off trail um, 
for multiple reasons, whether it's plant communities or what, but when I was guiding last year, um, I guided in Rocky Mountain National Park and then the surrounding wilderness areas. So the Indian Peaks Wilderness and the Never Summers Wilderness. Um, and the impact that people have is huge. Like if you have enough people that don't know how to leave no trace and they're just out there and they aren't considerate of the landscape, I mean, the impact just from like throwing trash or like the edges of granola bar wrappers, the amount of those that you would like see that are just like going to build up and get into wildlife digestive systems and right. get into things and the waterways and all this stuff. It's like people just need to be better educated. And there's a lot of people that go out and don't know really anything. And it's tough. That reminds me that. <clears throat> Uh, during that summer of 2020, uh, when the pandemic was like at its peak, I guess mm-hmm. I had went home, uh, to Beaumont and, um, I'm friends with a professor from McNeese state university. And he started this, this, uh, snake project where we'd go out and the road was our transect. We would just cruise it, um, yeah. in the evening and, and collect snakes. We're studying Mississippi green water snakes, saltmarsh snakes, and cottonmouths. And during the pandemic, that it was a, a, a national wildlife refuge it was closed to the public. And so like we got access out there to do research, but like we were out there three or four times a week and we got to know all the local wildlife there. Like there'd always be like a raccoon in this one spot and like a feral hog over here and a cormorant, like alligators all around tons of wildlife. When it opened up to the public after, you know, pandemic settled down, it changed totally all this and like individual animals I got to know they were gone. They're, they were no longer around because there's more yeah. people out there. Trash, uh, in, increased the amount of raccoon sightings I was having. Like it was really interesting to see how a uh, human, just human presence changed that marsh, like over, you know, a very short amount of time. That's, sure. that's it recreation. Really that's good. recreation ecology, right? That's like the yeah. same. Yeah. That's what I mean. That's kind of what I'm doing with. Yeah all the telemetry data it's like seeing where the mountain lions and elk were and where they were when no one was around and then looking at where they are now right right like they're gonna it's not gonna be the same like they're not gonna be in the same spots um but how big of a difference it is and how close they are getting to visitors and that kind of stuff but yeah that's that's recreation ecology like looking at that and if there was a way to actually like assess that that would have been really cool it was just my observation. Also, we, we got a lot more dead snakes, like, cause we're cruising down these roads and we'd get snakes that we had pit tagged run over. It's like, that sucks. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a data it. point, but, um, that was really interesting to see. And I, when that happened, I was thinking like all the other situations where the, the pandemic must be influencing wildlife populations and public wilderness areas you know, around the world. And it probably road mortality has probably decreased when nobody was driving, you know, that was 2020 yeah. is probably a net positive for wildlife just because of human activities were like simmered down so much. Yeah. When everything was closed, I think there was a lot of, of landscapes that kind of started Start to recovery. heal and then they yeah. immediately got it was just, So it like, was like, oh, even worse after that. Cause everybody wanted to get outside. Yeah. Well, there was like, um, in the past 20 years and I might, this might all just yeah a little bit wrong sorry if you look it up we're just having a conversation some some data where it's like in the past 20 years um there was like a 20 million increase in visitors across the national parks and in the past two years there was the same amount of increase in visitation as those past 20 years oh wow 
So it's like some crazy data that like, there's like this huge increase along a long period of time. And then this like even the same increase in like a super short amount of yeah, time. Two years. And that's why I like, believe it. Permit system is starting up. But that's social it's media. Very, it's social yeah. media. That's a big part of it. Oh, it's a right? huge part of it. There's some really depressing. one person posts a photo of a place and they're an influencer or whatever. Uh, this we saw that in Rocky Mountain. Like there was a lot of posts about Sky Pond. It was on some website about how it was so beautiful and it was like a top hike, and it was just so heavily trafficked. Like you just could not. It just wasn't worth right. going over there because there was so many people that were wearing flip flops hiking in and just like unprepared, but they just were going because like this is the place to go yeah. in the park. Um, I mean, you can you can see it when you're out there. It's sure. kind of a dilemma too, because we want to like share places and, and share the the yeah. joy of being in these beautiful outdoor places. But like, then if there's just hundreds of people going, then it sucks, you know? Yeah. It's kind of it's a weird dilemma. dilemma of that, like, don't yeah. gatekeep, but also right? then you can't be really mad if people are there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and sometimes it does get frustrating if you went somewhere for a really long time and it was always, you know, low traffic. And then one day there's just a boom of people, you know, that I get why that's frustrating to people. Um, but I also understand like you can't, you can't gatekeep the outdoors. That's why, I mean, I still need to see some of the, the grand national parks out West, but I just haven't been like that inspired to go out there because I feel like I'm going to go out there and they're, they're, these are huge landscapes, I guess. And you can find places without people, but, um, like, you know, like Yellowstone, for example, I need to see it once, but I'm just not that pumped up to go to Yellowstone. I'd rather go yeah. to some obscure, like public land in East Texas, where I'm going to see not a single soul and I'm going to see a cool ecosystem, you know, yeah. I don't know. That's just how I That's am. Less people, the better. The state parks in a lot of these Western states are way less heavily trafficked and yeah. they're like just as beautiful. Just as yeah. Um, but it's hard because like the national parks, it's like, that's the view like that is like what you see on postcards and on the media and that's everything um but then sometimes yeah when you're in the front country of those areas they're crowded it's tough do you have advice to 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 avoid like to see the wild place places without people because i'd I'd need to go out west um so there's usually off seasons a little bit there's usually times where there's less people around and it's usually going to be fall winter time, but it's also tough because then that those areas might have a lot of snow. Right. Um, very end of summer sometimes is good, but there's, there's ways to figure out when like there's less busyness. Um, also you need to get there really early. Usually if you can get there early enough, there won't be people, people that are there to vacation and just see it they usually don't get out there early enough and they're stuck in these long lines. And then there's like full capacity at these park trails. There were hikes that we would leave and do at like 3 a.m. And we wouldn't see anyone until we were coming back down. Right. So if you're like motivated (laughs) enough (laughs) to do like, that's really early. It's like, (laughs) well, in in the Rockies too, there's like midday thunderstorms. Okay. So at certain points you, you do have to get up early and and go on these peak hikes if you're wanting to hit the peak. So you don't, get stuck in a situation where you're like above tree line and in a thunderstorm. Um, so getting there early is always good. When I went to big bend last, 
we got there really early and we were able to get parking at one of the more popular trails and we were able to go on the trail and not see anyone for a while. Yeah. Um, so just, yeah, your timing is really important. If you go midday or if you go at like 9am or 10am, it's going to be busy. But if you go, if you wake up early and you get in there at like six or 7am when the sun's rising, you're going to have a much better experience for like multiple reasons. Yeah. I went to big Ben for the first time last year. And that, that's really the only national park I've been to, I guess. I, think I went to Colorado when I was a kid, but I have no memory of it. I'm sure we went yeah. to a national park, but I spend more time on, on um, like national forest land and like WMAs and state parks, because that's mainly what we have in Texas. Yeah. Um, but usually I don't deal with a lot of people in those scenarios, uh, but I got out to Big Ben and the first trail I hit, there were so many people. And like the, the thing now is like people are carrying like Bluetooth radios, like playing music the whole time. I'm like, yeah. what the heck is this? I feel like I'm in the city, you know, and it's all these people that like have no interest in nature. They're just going to get their Instagram pick and then leave. Yeah. And I was really turned off but that. After that first hike, I went and I talked to one of the park rangers and um, I was asking him about these orchids I was interested in and, and like where I could see them. And he led me to this, some really obscure trails that nobody else cares about. And that was a much better experience. I didn't see anybody on those yeah. Those uh random trails they sent me to. And that was a big difference. You know, those national parks are so big. So it seems like you can find areas to get away from the crowds. Definitely. And if you backpack, um, that's always a good way to. Because okay. by by the point of the first I have not day, done that yet. Uh, you're like five you're, miles in, and the next day you're not gonna see anyone. Like ah. backpacking is really fun. And honestly, I I hadn't really backpacked before I became the guide. Right. I like went on one trip with a friend so that I could tell them that I had done and it. You're a guide. <laughs> yeah. <That's> <laughs> so <laughs> they, the first trip, I was so nervous. It was like how nervous I was for like a poster presentation at Texas chapter. Like <laughs> palms were showing. I was like, no, it's okay. You can do this. You know what you're doing. Like, you know how to navigate in the backcountry and whatever. After the first trip, like we got there, we cooked, we camped. It was just an overnight trip. Yeah. Uh, we left. And I was like, okay that's easy. Like I know what I'm doing now. Um, but yeah, that first trip was pretty nervous. Um, but you just hold, you must hold yourself to just really high standards. I think nervous people are, or some people are just that way. You want to do a really good job, you know? Yeah, for sure. I, I don't want to like fail. I definitely have like a complex, you know, like that success driven, that's like normal attention oriented where it's like, Oh, people are going to know if I don't know. So I need to know it like really well. Um, but backpacking is a great way to, yeah. to get out pretty far and get from away from people and see things that a lot of people won't ever see, like see peaks yeah. that no one will see and lakes and all these really cool things. So that was, yeah. that was always a cool experience. Plus you do get away from the people yeah. playing music and that looked completely unprepared and aren't there trend. for the nature. That's the worst um, trend. Why do people do just, They should make it illegal in nature. They should. They, like, it's definitely just inconsiderate of like everyone around you. Even in like the city people that play music, like walking in a mall or like, I don't go to malls, just, but like yeah. people that are playing music in the public <laughs> realm. I'm like, what are you doing? Like put headphones in. It's just very inconsiderate. Like we don't care about your music case. Yeah. Um, <laughs> exactly. in a wilderness setting, like, especially when they're ter- playing terrible music. You know? ex- and it's, that's usually what it is. If they're playing it out loud, you know, right. <laughs> like if like, you have the confidence just to be playing this music, like mm, it's confidence you shouldn't have. Right. So yeah. it's, just, it's tough. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't even wear, like, I'll go to the, we have some really nice mountain bike trails in yeah. Lubbock and people will like be listening to music while they're doing that. And I'm like listening to birds and listening to prayer dogs and, you know, like 
I'm looking around and doing all this stuff. Like I'm out there, not even like for exercise, like just for the experience of being outside and getting to like experience things moving around me and the plants around me and all this stuff. It's, it's a shame when people go out and it's like for a goal that isn't just to experience wilderness. Yeah. Yeah. It's really unfortunate. Um, We've been going for a while. We'll uh, finish up here soon. I wanted to ask you about Jared Foster's class. Cool. Yeah, I can talk about that. I've followed him for a while and he teaches like this cool, like, um, like photography class, right? Yeah. So I'm actually in the class right now. It's called Adventure Media and it is a creative media industries and honors class. And I am neither creative media industry or an honor student, but (laughs) somehow I still made the cut. Okay. Um, it's, it's very cool. So the point of it is if you're interested in kind of like adventure journalism, um, adventure photography, any of these things, you take this class and then you are the subject. So the class is revolves around this like week long bike packing trip over spring break. So up until spring break, our classes are on Saturdays and they are bike rides and training rides and we Ooh, take train rides, huh? Yeah. So we have to go on a certain amount of rides a week and wow. we have to do this and that because it's like a hardcore spring break trip. Like we yeah. need to be in shape for it. Um, so we have all these rides and then on the Saturday rides, we have our cameras with us. So the first ride, we just focused on like photography and making sure everyone knew how to use the camera because it's not, not everyone's a creative media industry major, right? right? It's open to essentially anyone and honor students are every major across the board. I personally didn't really know how to use a camera other than like an auto before the class. So I was one of the people that were like, yeah, I don't know where that setting can be changed, but I'm going to need someone to come and help me. Are you going to, are you going to stick with photography after this? I just, let me show you my camera. I just bought a camera. Thank you. Which I know other people can't see this, but I do feel like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just bought a camera. I bought a really nice lens. Got a Canon uh, Rebel or. Yeah, it's a T6i. Okay. And. um, To me, if if you're interested in the outdoors, it it just elevates your experience to have a camera to capture. Exactly. And I want to kind of get more into like educational things on my Instagram and have it less about just like me and more about like things I'm doing and where I am. Um, And I thought when I'm actually taking better photos, I'd be happier to post them and like make them more educational. Meaningful. Um, So, and that's definitely, you know, coming off of watching you and your Instagram and everyone else that has like a really educational and like nice Instagram that like can teach people things. but yeah, so the first ride was photography and then the next ride, we had to take a certain amount of photos and we started taking videos. Um, and then we had, we have more rides than that, but we did our first overnighter in Caprock Canyon State Park and our like assignment was to make a vlog. So the whole time we're with like this little production team and we're all taking videos of each other and we're vlogging and we're talking about our experience. And after that, like we have to go and put it all together. So it's like a bunch of B-roll. So it's like photos of or videos of the canyon and videos of bison we see and videos of people like zooming by on bikes. And it's just, it's been like a very cool experience, but the part of the class 
that I feel like is the reason why I was accepted into it. Um, every time we stop, no matter where we are, Dr. Foster would be like, okay, guys, um, Sophie, what's that grass over there? Or like, Sophie, what are those trees? Or, you know, it's just like a constant question to me about like something in the ecosystem. Yeah. And sometimes I know, and sometimes I'm like, oh, I know what those are. And I'll like answer and I'll be really confident. Yeah. And then sometimes we'll just be like talking about something random. He's like, uh, Sophie should probably know those grasses. I'm like, I don't know what that grass is. <laughs> and so it just became like a running joke in the class that it was like, oh, well, you know, if there's something around, like Sophie will be asked what it is, um, which it was fun for, yeah. for the class. And I got to ID a lot of birds, um, but everyone just had such a different skill set because they were all different majors that like together we, we really got this really cool production yeah. team going together. Um, but for our spring break trip, we were in Riodoso and we did a 100 mile bikepacking loop wow. around Riodoso. And like I mentioned, Lubbock is flat, right? <laughs> so like we trained and we like bike into the canyon and out of the canyon a few times, um, but that wasn't the same as climbing a mountain. No. So the first, the first mountain we climbed, I think we were all kind of like shell shocked. We were like, so we're doing this every day. Like we have a climb like this every day. And Foster's like, yep. And the other professor, Dr. Keen, he's kind of like more with us. And he's like, yeah, guys, this does suck. And we're like, <laughs> yeah, it does. Um, but we had production team. So it was like one day you're on scenery and one day you're on action and one day okay. you're on log. And we had a theme for the class. So the theme was um, recreation and mental health and how they affect each other. And it wasn't so much that we were supposed to like explicitly talk about it. Be like, today my mental health is good because we went downhill for a really long time. It's, it was like, show it, don't say it. Okay. Um, and that's where the vlogs really came in handy. And not so much for me, I think there were a few outliers in the class where all of our vlogs were like, we're just so excited. And we just went up this big hill and now we're going down. And, and then there were some people that were like having a harder time and they really got to like show more emotional depth than yeah. I did where I was like, that really sucked. And <laughs> you know, it's going to be way more useful for the documentary you're making. So post trip, post the seven days of being out there, um, we we're organizing all of our files right now and then oh, the two master students are the ones that are like actually putting together the documentary that we're making yeah. so yeah, yeah the end the end goal is is the yeah. documentary is it gonna publish that anywhere like on social media you think yeah so we have a youtube channel uh the yeah. class is a youtube channel so it'll at least be posted there and then i know they did a big ben trip that just got published on pbs uh oh, wow. through texas parks and wildlife that's so <laughs> that's really cool. We'll, we'll do something with it. And yeah. mental health and recreation and the outdoors is, is a really big thing right now because it does, there is such a big relationship between it oh, for sure. um, that, and there's so much stigma that like anyone that talks about it, everyone's like, Oh, that's so awesome that you talked about that. And it's like, yeah, well, no problem. You know? Just so normal. I'm sure we'll do something. It's very that. normal to talk about mental health. Yeah. You know, it's uh, something everybody struggles with. Even people that say they don't, they do, you know, they just don't, a lot of people aren't uh, self-aware enough to realize how various factors affect their mood. Exactly. And, and there's some that are worse than others, right? Like I get really bad anxiety just about anything. Like if I had a stressful day, like just going on a bike ride, I can just completely clear my mind. And like, for me, that's what it is. But for other people, you know, that have like 
diagnosed mental health conditions. Right. Like they have a completely different experience than me being like, oh, I was really stressed out today. Maybe I should do something. You know? Yeah. That's similar to me. I notice, um, like I've been working on this house that I live in right now and it's still not finished and it's still rather depressing living here, (laughs) but uh, it's going to be worth it in the end because it's a free house. But anyway, um, for like the first month of, uh, coming out here, working on it, I didn't do anything outdoors. Really. I was not going on herping or birding trips for like a whole month mm-hmm. and I haven't done that in a long time. Like yeah. usually every month I'm doing something or every week really. And I like my mental health degraded so much throughout that month. I was like, dang that I didn't realize I knew I really relied on getting outside and like traveling to a new area, even if it's like an hour away and experiencing mm-hmm. an ecosystem. I knew that was really important for me, but like this, these past few months, it was really evident because I was like, gosh, I, I don't feel good. <laughs> you know, I really don't feel myself. And when you realize that and you realize it's because you've been cooped up, like yeah. it's, that's the reason why so many people are going to these national parks, right? Like <laughs> inside it was so hard. Yeah. Like you are just inside stuck. It just feels like you're stuck and it really affects you. It's it hard. It's gotta be everybody, but you know, especially people that have a knack for the outdoors already. Like if you yeah. keep yourself up, it's like even worse. I feel like. No, exactly. Um, but yeah, I'm getting out more lately, and it's, it's good. I'm, I feel starting to gain some clarity again. Feel human um, again. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't even do podcasts during that time because I just didn't feel myself. You know, I just yeah didn't want to talk to people. I want to just sit in my house and and uh, just uh, bathe in my emotions. You know, <laughs> is there anything else you want to uh, cover? we covered a lot of stuff that you've done in your undergrad and what you're going to do in grad school um texas tech wildlife society i think we covered most of it and if we didn't we covered it in the first round so at least you gotta hear about it you know (laughs) maybe i can clip stuff out from the first take no we didn't record it yeah i was about to say i was like not thinking straight (laughs) i'm not thinking straight i don't know why we stopped right yeah, that's really unfortunate that that happened, but it, it turned oh, out. Oh, that's okay. totally okay. Things you have happen. a, um, I like to ask people um, at the end if they have just anything they want to like, um, any sort of message they want to end on, or you want to just tell people it can be related to wildlife or mental health or really anything. Positive okay. message, ideally. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. No, I don't know. I, yeah. if Future I can. wildlife students, maybe, I don't know. Anything. Just get get in, if you are a wildlife student get involved and do as much field work as you can um and just get out figure out what you like to do and what you don't i feel like figuring out sometimes what you don't like to do is more important than figuring out what you do right because it like right. narrows down the no big yeah. range of like options you have in this field um but the just the more actual experience hands-on experience you get it's gonna pay off in the long run right very good do you want to um, add your social media or anything? Sure. I feel like I should know it off the top of my head, but. That's all good. Uh, when I get asked questions, like easy questions sometimes, like caught off guard, I can't answer them. So. It's definitely been the same since I was a kid and it has been like every social media handle I've ever had, but it's just Sophie Morris underscore 18. Sweet. And, and you're going to, you know, now that you're, well, you're going into grad school, I guess, but you're going to have more time to maybe do more stuff on social media, more interest to do more on there. Yeah. I'm, I'm doing a little bit more right now just yeah. on biking. Um, cause I'm training for that century ride, okay. which is a hundred okay. mile ride with a few people in my class. 
So I'm like kind of starting to dip my toes into just like explaining things to people and like showing off what I'm doing. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, when I, when I finish up, when I'm working on grad school and when I'm doing stuff with that, I'm, I'm hoping to start like really For sure. share that and like what we're yeah. learning and what we're doing and why we're doing it. Um, versus just like, Hey, me and my friends hung out today, you know, <laughs> where it was like definitely how I was in high school. Try to, try but, to teach people stuff. Very yeah. good. Thank you so much, Sophie. I think, uh, yeah. I had a really Thanks good time talking to you now. I'm excited to see where your career leads. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. This is so much fun. Yeah. Till next time.